They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they make. Good evening, ladies and germs, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the present day. We are coming to you live in crystal clear Spookasonic audio from our luxury studio on board the Missouri Cannonball, America's oldest ghost train. Are you tired of the disbelieving exhaustion and covert exorcisms that come with haunting Amtrak? <laughs> Try the Missouri Cannonball with stops located wherever a drunk itinerant is standing near a lonesome railroad crossing. I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Justice Hepburn. Hi, Spookorama fans. It's me, Justice. I didn't save my audio when we recorded this episode, so all of my parts have been replaced with this cruel and inaccurate impression. Bye! Alex Kump. I'm a ghost. And Sabrina Gall. Hey, guys. And our tireless producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everyone. This is episode 11, and tonight we're taking a look at two horror reboots from Universal from the year 1940. First up, it's The Invisible Man Returns. Then we go back to the sands of Egypt for The Mummy's Hand. So how are we doing tonight, guys? Pretty good. Doing all right. I'm eating a uh, snap and share bear made of chocolate. Oh. Yeah, you are. Oh, how is it? it, it it's it definitely chocolate. Are you both snapping and sharing? I am uh, sharing it with myself. Uh, it was uh, Sabrina's birthday was a couple days ago, and uh, she gave me eight, multiple presents for her birthday. <laughs> Guys, let's give a big spookrama happy birthday to Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Woo! I brought that. All of our listeners are applauding and cheering right now. You can't hear them, though. <laughs> oh, man. Little do they all know, I just tweeted at myself for my birthday, so that was really cool. That's <laughs> probably the best gift I could have ever given me. <laughs> so, guys, our first uh, movie that we watched this week was The Invisible Man Returns. And so to start us off, I wrote a little summary to uh, catch our listening audience uh, up to speed. So here we go. Our story begins with our protagonist, Jeffrey Radcliffe, played by Vincent Price, but yet unseen, imprisoned on death row for murdering his brother. His friends and relations, including his cousin Richard Cobb, played by Sir Cedric Hardwick, his fiancée Helen, Nan Gray, and Dr. Frank Griffin, played by some guy, <laughs> fret over his fate and swear that he couldn't have committed the murder. Dr. Griffin goes to visit Radcliffe, and shortly thereafter, the convict mysteriously vanishes from his cell. A police inspector interrogates Griffin and accuses him of using his late brother Jack's invisibility serum. Editor's note, see The Invisible Man, 1933, <laughs> to help Radcliffe escape. Meanwhile, at a remote cabin, Helen rendezvous with Radcliffe, now invisible. He swears that he'll use his invisibility to bring his brother's killers to justice, and hopes that his friend Dr. Griffin will create an antidote before his brother's infamous serum drives Radcliffe insane. After being chased from the cabin by a suspicious policeman, Radcliffe returns to his family's coal plant, now managed by his cousin. 
When he notices that a drunken employee has been mysteriously promoted, Radcliffe torments the man until he admits that it was Radcliffe's cousin Richard Cobb who murdered his brother and then framed Jeffrey so that he could inherit the factory. And the drunken sot was promoted because he knew the truth and Cobb bought him off. Radcliffe goes to confront Cobb, but he's cornered by the police and only barely escapes, hiding out with Griffin and Helen. When he starts to become obsessed with megalomaniacal fantasies, they try to restrain him, but he escapes. He returns to Cobb and sneaks him out of custody with a gun at his back. The two drive to the coal plant so Radcliffe can extract a confession, but the two end up in a brawl that leads to Cobb being thrown from a coal elevator to his death and Radcliffe being shot by the police. Cobb confesses to the murder before his death, and Radcliffe dons the clothes from a scarecrow and turns himself in. Dr. Griffin gives Radcliffe a blood transfusion to save his life, which also conveniently makes him visible again. The end. So, guys, what do we think of The Invisible Man Returns? Oh, man. Movie's so nice, they wanted to do it twice. <laughs> Liter- literally the exact same movie. <laughs> Justice, do you want to weigh in? Well, at the beginning of the movie, when they showed the first shot of the coal plant, I was like... Oh man, I hope the climax of this movie takes place on one of those coal carts. And it totally did. (laughs) Now that's delivering what the audience wants. (laughs) But otherwise, this movie is pretty mediocre. Yeah, uh, I made the mistake of watching this after uh, I watched The Mummy's Hand. Likewise. And let me tell you, The Mummy's Hand was appropriately lengthed. Uh, This movie was not. The Mummy's Hand was very easy to follow-ish. This movie was not. I thought this movie was pretty good, actually. I, I, I thought it was sort of a... I came away with the impression that it was something of a hidden gem. I don't know. I thought it was... Obviously, they're, they're working with the same set of tools, but obviously it is a sequel. But I thought that it was uh, dramatically different in tone uh, than the original. None of that sort of wacky anarchy is present. Uh, it's a very sort of conventional, serious film. That's true. I guess it's definitely... I would agree. I think it's a, it's a little more consistent in tone um, as opposed to the first. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's doing... You know, it's the same tricks, you know, sort of special effects as the original, but... Uh, I think that it, there's actually better than than the original. I thought that they did more and more fun stuff. Absolutely. Like, uh, anytime that you watch an old movie and you're like, how the fuck did they do that without, like, some crazy person sitting for 17 hours in front of a computer to make this, like, one little, like, blade of grass move when someone's supposed to step there? Like, it's fucking great. Also, that was the grossest long description of my sentence, and I apologize for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow, I, I guess we, we can get more into our feelings about the film and our uh, analysis later on. But sort of, I guess the first obvious thing to say about this movie is it stars uh, Vincent Price. And it is, is his first horror movie role, if you want to call this a horror movie, which I am, because this is a horror movie podcast. And uh, actually, this was only his fourth film. He's extremely young in this movie, and <laughs> his sort of signature voice sort of is is not totally developed yet. It doesn't always sound like him, which is sort of interesting. Some of his f- previous films uh, prior to this include The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, uh, starring Betty Davis and Errol Flynn. He plays Sir Walter Raleigh in that. And then also he was in a film from 1939 produced by Universal, which I mentioned in our last episode called Tower of London, uh, which has Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff. It's sort of like a horror-related film, but not one we watched and not one I care to talk about all that much. But obviously, the producers at Universal liked him enough in that film that they decided to give him the lead role in this movie, even though he doesn't get top billing. 
But then again, he was uh, an up-and-comer. He was not well-known. Okay, both movies we watched this week are like uh, The Son of Frankenstein last week. Remakes or remake-adjacent? Yeah, and I think that you can draw an obvious line from the success of Son of Frankenstein in 1939 to these movies, where it's like, okay, we've got these properties. Let's... Let's make more. Let's beat them to death. Mm-hmm. This was also not the only Invisible Man series movie released this year. Uh, a little later in the year, they also released The Invisible Woman, which was a more of a comedy, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And this would, like the Mummy series, this would go on to be a, uh, a long-running series for Universal all throughout the 40s. Uh, there were several more after this, though this was the only one uh, with Vincent Price in the lead role. And from what I understand, the most successful of them. Yes, yes. Uh, there was The Invisible Woman that, that same year, which, Alex, like you say, was a comedy. There was a movie called Invisible Agent, uh, which was a World War II thriller where the Invisible Man... What? Yeah, the Invisible Man goes behind the German lines. What? And Peter Lorre's the bad guy in that one. What? <laughs> there was uh, the Invisible Man's Revenge, which I don't know much about, but it sounds like was an attempt to get back to sort of the original film where the Invisible Man was evil instead of being the hero. And then... As with most of Universal's horror properties, there was an Abbott and Costello meets the Invisible Man uh, in the 50s. Uh, So this film was directed by Joe May, which I believe was not his real name, uh, because he was a pioneering German filmmaker, actually, starting in, I think, the, the, the teens, you know, the 1910s, even before sort of the really important silent German filmmakers like Fritz Lang and F.W. Murnau got started. Both the movies we watched this week are loose sequels. Between the two of them, you have sort of an interesting spectrum of how sequels are made. Yeah. This movie especially felt like a well-executed sequel. Right. Well, it's the same but different. You know, rather than The Invisible Man doing wacky hijinks and also murdering hundreds of people this time the invisible man's the hero it's like terminator 2 (laughs) another thing this film does is it's in shockingly good continuity with the original for what's basically a cheapo horror movie from the 40s the original came out in 33 and this one like acknowledges the existence of that film and you know builds on it in a way that's not really distracting to a viewer who would view them Back to back. In contrast, you've got The Mummy's Hand, which, not to get too much into it now, despite using footage from the original Mummy, has no story relation whatsoever. It explicitly was positioned to replace the events of the first movie completely. (laughs) Yes. But dumber. Which is to say, everything's great. Don't say anything (laughs) terrible about The Mummy. I'll be so sad. (laughs) (laughs) So, from a modern perspective, I think we can all agree that the highlight is Vincent Price's first horror performance. And interestingly enough, he would appear very regularly in films all throughout the 40s, but he actually would not appear in another horror movie until 1953, which is uh, House of Wax, uh, aside from a vocal cameo in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. So it's sort of interesting that he's known today as, you know, a signature horror actor, and he got started so early in his career with this horror film, and then he just didn't do it for 10 years. Also, I do want to say when he finally becomes visible at the end of the movie, um, without a goatee, that man does not look right. It's true. Accurate. <laughs> he, he doesn't look like himself. It's uncanny. Yeah, like, it, it, took a, it took a little bit for me to say, wait, do I know who Vincent Price is? <laughs> Realized I don't know him as this, and uh, that was it. <laughs> Does anybody have like a moderate or uh, interestingly terrible Vincent Price impression? No. No. I could attempt it, but I I, I wouldn't do it. Bet my life on it. 
Well, we're not asking you to. I'm asking you to entertain the, the fucking fans of the show. Who may not know who Vincent Price is. Hello, Spookorama audience. I'm Vincent Price. You may remember me from the Roger Corman horror pictures based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. You, I don't know, fuck it, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very young in this movie, and you barely hear me speak like this. That was, that was not as bad as you thought it was. So, so guys, my, my favorite, my favorite part of the movie was, uh, was definitely the part with the guinea pigs. (laughs) So, yeah. For our listeners, these guinea pigs have been turned invisible so that our doctor man, yes, I do refuse to remember anyone's name in this mo- in these movies, so that he can try and find um, a way to make these guinea pigs, a.k.a. Vincent Price, uh, not invisible. And, you know, you, you get this like foreshadowing of how uh, our invisible man is going to die, except he doesn't die in the, at the end of this movie. But you you know you get these little little tiny guinea pigs, not saddles, but you know little restraints and <laughs> little guinea pig harnesses. Little, yeah. <laughs> yeah, these little har- <laughs> little guinea pig harnesses, and they're just moving around the screen. <laughs> and he, one of them comes back to life and is immediately dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm not. Nope. <laughs> so that's like halfway into the movie. So if uh, listeners, if you want to just watch it for that part, I would totally understand. That's a great little special effect. It's got a little harness moving around. It's great. Well, I think it's a fun part, but, you know, earlier in the scene, they show you the little guinea pigs moving around, scurrying about, and then, when it gets to the invisible part, it's just like harnesses moving around in a perfect circle. I don't know. Man, it was 1940. And they're so silly. God, they were so cute. Yeah, I've got some real problems with some of the special effects in this movie. Uh, You know, some of them are cool, like the Invisible Man interacting with people and stuff, but anytime it's just like something being pulled by a string, it looks so janky. That's Um, true. No, the single best uh, thing was when he's like walking through the marsh right near the beginning, and like it's just like, how the fuck do you do that? That's so cool. Yeah, it's cool. Well, for the folks back at home, you, you see like his footprints as he as he steps in the grass, uh, and things like that, and um, it looks great. Looks really good. I also love the proto Hollow Man effects where he's in uh, the smoke or rain, and you can see his outline. Yeah. yeah, I thought that that was a a nice thing that we didn't see in the original that this movie does. Yeah, and they they like talked about it a few times too. You know, smoke a cigar and you won't, and you uh, you'll you'll see him. Can we talk for a second about the inspector? Uh, sure. I love the inspector in this movie uh, because he is just so fucking self-assured through this entire thing. <laughs> yeah, he's got this shit figured out. <laughs> like he's like mm-hmm. literally from the first moment he is like, nah, he's invisible. I got a cigar. I'll be fine. <laughs> Would you like a cigar? Oh no, I don't smoke. Have you tried smoking? You'll see him. <laughs> <laughs> and then like for the rest of the movie, like the guy escapes and he's like, oh, there's a guy passed out here. He, so he's somewhere else in the house. And he's like, he's not in the house. <laughs> and then the police are just so much better organized this time around. Yeah, I like the scene with the police are in gas masks and they've got like smoke guns. Um, I thought mm-hmm. that that was really clever. Way better than the stupid paint spitters. <laughs> yes. Oh Although, interestingly enough, one of the cockamamie schemes discussed by the police in the original, which is put dirt on stuff and wait for it to move, <laughs> actually shows up in this film when he's walking down the ladder and there's dirt on the rungs. <laughs> It works pretty well, though. Yeah, but nobody notices the dirt falling off the ladder. 
So it's ultimately pointless. <laughs> well, no one would have noticed it in the original either. <laughs> yeah. No, wait, that was one of their plans in the original. It's just yeah, like yeah. cat knocked the dirt off. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yes, foiled again. Um, I also just really, there's something that's like so beautiful about how this inspector managed to like just convince all of these constables that like this is a thing (laughs) except for that except for that one except for that one who was but like he was like following his orders to the fucking t without even giving a moment of sass he was just like i don't think it's real but this is my job yeah I'll, i'll believe it when i see it was my favorite line there's some cute moments in the script like when i believe the same uh cop that you're talking about says I won't believe he's invisible till I see him. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, that's you know. the same line I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or um, Vincent Price's character says, well, if it comes to it, I can always get a job haunting a house. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> There's some cute moments in the script. Yeah, it, it fits in a lot better because the rest of this, it's not trying to, I feel like it's trying a lot harder to be a spooky or not spooky movie, but like it's not trying to be a comedy. Yeah. So just in terms of uh, the supporting cast, there's actually there's some interesting things to talk about. Helen Radcliffe's fiance is played by Nan Gray, who uh, longtime listeners of the podcast may recognize uh, as being featured in Dracula's Daughter. She was the model that the Countess Zaleska drinks the blood of in Dracula's Daughter. Sir Cedric Hardwick, who of course is the villain in this one, is just you know one of those actors who was in everything for like 50 years uh but he also appeared in a frankenstein film uh the ghost of frankenstein he's um dr frankenstein's second son after wolf frankenstein in that one and the police inspector is played by cecil Kellaway, who also appears in the mummy's hand he's uh the great solvani in the mummy's hand and uh, he actually was nominated twice for best supporting actor including for an appearance in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in the 60s. Which, like, I read that immediately after seeing the fucking magic antics in The Mummy's Hand, and I was just shocked. (laughs) But I I guess, well, you know, we we mentioned before the special effects are a lot of fun, and uh, John P. Fulton was the special effects coordinator, and uh, this film actually won an Academy Award in 1940 for uh, Best Special Effects. I thought that overall the script for this was sort of a very classical script. All the beats are there. It all makes sense. There's none of that weird experimental quality that the 30s films have. There's also none of that uh, James Whale campiness of the first one, though. Yeah, well, that's true. Which made it in some ways better. Yeah, it's different. It's a different movie. Um, Something I really liked uh, like about all the... um. You know, while doing some research, I'm finding all of these images where our invisible man is like ghostly in the scene, and I think that's really cool. So it looks like just image, just stills of the of the of the movie where you you um get where he's like half faded in, half not. And it's pretty nice. That's not really a discussion point. That's just a fun thing that I enjoyed. <laughs> well, something I did notice about this movie before I get into the trivia is that the production values are higher, sort of. Like, it's a small cast. There's not a ton of mystery about, like, who the killer could possibly be because there's, like, six named cast members. But, like, there's a lot of scenes with a lot of extras in this. There's uh, this sort of elaborate on-location shooting that actually is involved in the plot. Um, and that's something that, I don't know, we just haven't really seen before. You know, compare that with uh, the other movie we watched this week, The Mummy's Hand, which is all shot very obviously on sets um, with a small number of extras. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it just seemed notable to me. But uh, just in terms of some trivia, the drunk guy was played by Alan Napier. 
um, who is actually most famous for playing Alfred on the 60s Batman series. Ah. And amusingly, in the 80s Tim Burton Batman, the alias of the Joker is Jack Napier, which is named after Alan Napier. So, interesting. Uh, and also, the guy who lives in the cabin where they hide out briefly, that actor is Forrester Harvey, who appeared in the original Invisible Man, and he was the innkeeper opposite uh, Una O'Connor, our favorite screaming hysterical actress. <laughs> Oh, that was something I wanted to say. I really hated that guy. He was fucking annoying. Terrible. Yeah, he was, uh, he's giving me flashbacks to, um, the Cockney, um, (laughs) guy from Dracula from our first episode. Also, I want to congratulate the local police in this English town, uh, from no longer recruiting from the Keystone Cop Academy, <laughs> and now only recruiting from the Laurel and Hardy School of Oafishness. <laughs> yeah, also, I do want to give it up to the movie for In the Police File, where they reference uh, Jack Griffin, the original Invisible Man. They just have a Claude Rains headshot, like a Hollywood headshot. <laughs> so good. I also uh, really like that on the file for the invisible man in this movie they had a uh like as like sentence death <laughs> oh, yeah. i did want to highlight the scene at the end where he takes the clothes off a scarecrow and puts them on mm-hmm. apparently that took many hours to film for an ultimate three minutes of uh film footage <laughs> yeah like like nearly a day of shooting from what i could from what i read i also didn't don't like the the layering effect for um him becoming a person again it might just be my dislike of seeing the lymphatic system (laughs) overlaid over anything but um yeah he does turn into slim good body for a second so (laughs) is uh is there anything else we want to talk about with the invisible man returns i don't buy vincent price's character because there's no such thing as a golden-hearted industrialist oh he's like the second son of an industrialist I think the best part about his character is how he remembered that he made like a pact to the doctor dude to say, you know, if I go crazy, please lock me away. And then he's aware that he's been locked away because other one, everyone thinks he's crazy. Mm. <laughs> well, gang, uh, do we have do we have a moral to the story? Yeah. What's the, what's the uh, the lesson we can take away from this film? I would say if you're trying to slip someone a Mickey and you keep trying to bait them into doing a toast, don't um, not drink and stare at them and wait for them to drink. (laughs) Seriously, you could have solved that whole scenario by just drinking your champagne. You didn't put anything in yours. (laughs) Like, you guys would have been fine. I think the moral of the story is um, either hire a goddamn PI or get a better lawyer. (laughs) I think the moral of this movie for me is if you think you can invent an antidote to something that is magic in two days, you can't do it. Yeah, yeah. it's just like, well, you know, uh, I have the my brother's invisibility serum. It drove him mad. It drove him to kill hundreds of people. <laughs> but I'm absolutely sure I can come up with an antidote in like <laughs> three days. Doesn't matter. Because he does come up with the antidote in like three days. It just gives someone regular blood. But you think he, he could have figured that out before he <laughs> gave the guy? I mean, like, they don't just hang you overnight. That guy must have been in jail for a while. Yeah. That's fair. Well, gang, uh, would you recommend The Invisible Man Returns? No! Uh, I'm going to go out and say, nah, man. If you got like a boner for, like, special effects and you want to see some, like, moderately okay ones, like check it out i guess but 
you know, if you're just going to watch a movie and you're like, this is going to be an important thing, uh, you should watch a movie that matters. Yeah, I'd hesitantly recommend. If you liked the first one, uh, go for it. Um, I would say this is a great movie if someone's coming over to Netflix and chill, because if you end up having to watch the entire movie, it's not the worst thing in the world. But, you know, if you also start smooching in the middle of it and you miss all of it, that's fine, too. Great dating advice from uh, Alex. Thanks. Uh, I would um, I would recommend this movie. I thought it, Honestly, I thought it was a hidden gem. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, I have a lot more to say about The Mummy's Hand, but I like The Invisible Man Returns a lot more. So, yeah, I would recommend it. If you're fans of this podcast, you'll probably get a kick out of it. Hello? So shall we move on, speaking of the mummy's hand, to the mummy's hand? Yeah, let's uh, let's wrap things up. <laughs> Alex, can you summarize the mummy's hand for us? I can. I also want to warn you all, I might have uh, blown my joke load right in this. So if I have no more jokes for the rest of this part, it's because I wrote a very long but goofy summary. The Mummy's Hand follows archaeologist and part-time Breitbart editor Steve Banning and his goofball assistant Jensen as they bum around Egypt trying to discover ancient secrets in order to not return to his gentrified neighborhood in Brooklyn. At a marketplace in Cairo, they run into a not-at-all-conspicuous creepy beggar and then find a broken pot that may or may not have a map to an ancient tomb engraved on it. In order to fund their expedition to desecrate the hallowed grounds at the center of an entire culture's historical belief system, the two con an American magician in Cairo into paying for them to go on a white people adventure. His daughter assistant, Marta, is correctly skeptical of their colonial bullshit and insists on following along because of reasons. While digging in the desert, they find not the sexy goddess mummy they were expecting, but instead a boring old dude mummy. Aw, man. The high priest that's sworn to protect the secretly living mummy shows up and has the mummy kill an archaeologist before the two run away, presumably to fuck in a different chamber. True. Our protagonists find the body of the archaeologist and figure, hey, this is fine, and keep digging around. (laughs) Uh, The mummy, with the help of the creepy beggar from the marketplace, run around the site and try to kill some more people, and eventually the mummy steals Marta, the only person who has any fucking brains, taking her into the big fancy tomb that everyone was looking for. While she's here, the high priest plans to turn both her and himself immortal so they can be in love forever, because if there's one thing that women like, it's getting forcibly kidnapped and injected with ancient leaf soup. In the film's climax, the quote-unquote heroes break into the temple and destroy the mummy, effectively ending its reign of being a creature that is only protecting its heritage. The film has a happy ending with our protagonist heading back to America to continue his lifestyle of colonialism and white nationalism. (laughs) 
Thank you very much, Alex. The only negative thing I will hear about this movie is that the only bad thing about this movie is that the mummy looks like a big butthole. (laughs) I'm glad we're barely into the second half of this podcast and it's just completely off the fucking rails. (laughs) No, this is on the rails. This is the only bad thing about the movie. This is otherwise perfect. (laughs) Well, uh, I guess to start, I'd like to talk a little bit about the background of this film. So uh, when... Universal saw money in the water after the success of Son of Frankenstein. They made The Invisible Man Returns this year. They made The Mummy's Hand this year. This movie is very illustrative in terms of most of the horror films that Universal would make during the 1940s. So this is this is a B movie, and I am trying to not say that as a pejorative, but simply as a descriptor. You know, it's low budget. It's meant to make a buck, and. The writers of this film were actually writers of film serials, which were another popular form of mass entertainment at the time. And you can see the influence of film serials on this film in that our star Dick Foran and our movie monster, played by Tom Tyler, were both stars of westerns, western serials. Uh, And for the folks at home who do not know, serials would be short, sort of episodic films uh, that would be in a long continuing series that would play at the beginning of a movie and would often end on a cliffhanger that would you know invite you to come back to the movies next week to see what happens next it was serials like this adventure serials westerns science fiction serials upon which these nostalgic movies uh, like star wars and indiana jones were based so guys what did we think about the mummy's hand uh so much fun yeah so I love all of mummy, every mummy. <laughs> Sabrina, you and I are united in our love of mummies. We both love mummies. Oh, are we? Okay, I couldn't tell. You sounded like you had a whole bunch of really bad things to say about it, and I was scared. So I'm getting preemptively defensive. I do have bad things to say about this movie, but I love mummies. <laughs> and you're wrong about all of them. Because <laughs> I've already told you the one bad thing. <laughs> I mean, you know me. It's a black and white horror movie. I can't hate it that much. That's true. It's only an hour, so I mean, I don't know if it counts for you. It's only 67 minutes long, 10 of which are flashbacks we've already seen in a different movie. (laughs) Uh, So this film was directed by Christy Caban, a longtime director of Schlock, uh, who produced hundreds of movies in his long career. He started off, I believe, as an assistant to um, D.W. Griffith, and he made tons and tons and tons of movies in the silent era. Uh, he would continue his career into the sound era, mostly making schlock. But uh, this is one of his films. I have very little to say about the direction of this film or the cinematography, except that there's a cool shot where you can see the mummy outlined in a tent. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was nice. Let's talk about my, the, the single best, like, I don't, tech, I don't know, it's like half cinematography, half special effect, is all the close-ups of the mummy, they like blacked out his eyes and mouth. I would assume that's a post-production effect. They actually went into every frame and blacked them out. That's why if you, if you like look closely, like the black outlines sort of like are a little fuzzy. It's because I think they did it by hand. They flicker a little. Yeah. It, it, it's a cool effect. Yeah. God, but every time I see a full uh, see him in full bodies, I'm just so sad because he's just such a terrible looking mummy. And they they say, you know, it's this is this is the most one of the most well preserved mummies we've ever seen. It's like, I don't know if that's true. Uh, what's super weird about this movie is that like they can't stumble upon like a full mummy that is like has not decomposed in like its own casket, 
and they're just like, ugh, wasn't the queen. <laughs> like, uh, like this is like, like if this was just like what they found, it would probably be like the biggest archaeological find of the cent- of the decade, if not the century. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, I guess not the century because Tutankhamun is in the twenties. But like, fucking, like they're just like, oh, this, ugh, man, I wanted to find gold, motherfucker. <laughs> well, the script seems to believe that archaeologists are um tomb robbers, tomb robbers, <laughs> <laughs> where it's just like. Ah, I've discovered this ancient, uh, you know, archaeological treasure. Time to sell it all for my own profit. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, yeah, we're gonna bring this all on the boat so we can bring it over to back over to New York. Well, it's like they get Silvani on board, and they're like, you know, you make this small investment, and we'll pay you back in ancient Egyptian gold and jewels. It's like, <laughs> what, what, what kind of archaeologists are you? And then they're so offended when someone thinks they're con artists. <laughs> which which they are. They did that. <laughs> I did want to mention, because I, I only found this out later, and I did not realize it at all when, we, when I was watching it, but Wallace Ford, he plays Babe, the sidekick, the comic sidekick. He was- Comic uh, and scare quotes. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, Frozo the Clown in Freaks. Oh. Oh. Uh, Cecil Kellaway, uh, as I mentioned in uh, our talk about The Invisible Man Returns, uh, appears in this film as the great Solvani- uh, Peggy Morin was in films for like five years and she's our female lead and she does fine. Uh, the script doesn't give her much to do. Dick Foran was another one of those like cheapo Western serial sort of heroes. I don't know. He, he's he got like this potato face that I don't care for. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, our villain, uh, the Egyptian priest Endoheb, is played by uh, Universal stalwart George Zuko. Uh, he would play villains in uh, many universal horror films throughout the 40s. He also has a very strange head. He does, yeah. And the mummy himself, Karis, is played by Tom Tyler, who I mentioned was a uh, star of Western serials. Uh, he apparently was picked because he had a superficial resemblance to Boris Karloff. And uh, in all Mummy sequels that would come after this, the Mummy would be played by Lon Chaney Jr., who would become the big breakout horror star that Universal had in the 40s, but obviously was in these Mummy movies for marquee value because the Mummy himself doesn't actually have to do a lot of acting. I mean, really, you only have to be in the movie for like 10 minutes. So that's all that matters. But I'm sure you get paid pretty well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm told that in later Mummy sequels, the makeup obviously was incredibly heavy for the Karis the Mummy. And so Lon Chaney Jr. would have a tube leading to like a flask of vodka that he would just continually drink while he was acting. <laughs> um, I want to talk about uh, one of my favorite things that I noticed while watching and then a reviewer when it came out actually noted it too. Nobody in this film really like everyone's pretty like level like unnecessarily level headed through the entire film. They're like, oh, this everyone's like running away because they're like terrified of opening this tomb. Oh, whatever. Oh, this guy died. That's fine. Oh, this lady was kidnapped. Uh, we should go get her. It's just sort of like like no one's like, oh my god, this crazy shit's happening. They're all like, oh okay. Yeah, they do the standard like they bring along um you know a guy named Ali, who they call Ali. Uh, and he's like, do not disturb the tomb. It is accursed. And they're like, oh, the superstitious natives. They don't understand. And then, um, you know, the mummy comes out, starts killing people, kills Ali, and they just, they don't give a shit. They don't, they don't really care. What's his name? Babe uh, is practicing his rock-swallowing gag. Like, Ali is, like, 
fucking dead at his feet and he's doing the rock swallowing gag. <laughs> uh, so uh, you may have noticed that um, some of the sets and locations looked a little odd in this film. For the Egyptian tomb, uh, Ananka's tomb or whatever it is, they had reused a set from a James Whale-directed uh, adventure film called Green Hell. Did this take place in Mesoamerica? Huh. Yes, it was supposed to be an Inca temple, which is why it has the big Inca statue on the outside. Yeah. Uh, also, it is an outdoor set in what is obviously Southern California, <laughs> and the expedition campground scene appears to take place on a beach. Um, there's a there's a lot of uh, like ground cover for the height of the desert. Yeah, 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 and like the mummy makes his way through. Uh, what appears to be a bunch of eucalyptus. Yeah, there's a couple things about you know sort of the background that this movie sets up. One of which is you know in the beginning you have this introductory scene where they replay the flashback from the original mummy with a couple uncomfortably added new scenes in which you know he tells the story of Karis and the princess Ananka. But for whatever reason, the guy they picked to play the high priest has this like Jimmy Durante accent. <laughs> Like, I, you know, I expect him to start singing Frosty the Snowman or like the Princess Sananka. She was buried under a big W. Um, <laughs> it's very strange. But also they make this huge thing out of the Tana leaves. So, okay, the Tana leaves are extinct, but there's enough of them to keep fueling the plot forever. That's fine. <laughs> Three Tana leaves on a full moon to keep the mummy alive. Nine to bring him to life, but never any more than nine or else you will become an unstoppable killing machine who will take over the world. That's like a big setup for something that never happened. Exactly! In a typical sort of script writing, you know, realm, if you set something like that up, you gotta give the mummy more than nine Tana leaves, you know? And then it's like, oh no, the stakes are raised, the heroes have to pull off some crazy thing to stop it, but instead he just, he never really gets more than nine, and then they light him on fire... And then I guess that's it. So what we have is some really responsible archaeologists. <laughs> <laughs> I also, the mummy just seems so, because, okay, the, the Karis, the mummy in, in this movie, unlike Imhotep in, in the original, is just a brute. He just strangles people. Yeah, he's a tool of the high priest. Yeah, and, like, they never make him come off as, like, quite so threatening. He strangles two people to death who were weaker than him and who looked weaker than him. And then he gets shot twice and lit on fire and dies. Also, he doesn't... I understand that, you know, this is a lighthearted adventure movie. But, like, he goes to strangle Solvani, the magician, and then I guess he just stops. He has to carry off Marta. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, what's his name? <laughs> Steve Banning is like, oh, no, he'll be fine. He's just a little shaken up. <laughs> Marta, the great Solvani's daughter, has exactly the right idea how to react to two con men swindling her father, which is to just take a gun and threaten to kill them. <laughs> Marta was, like, refreshingly awesome for, like, a lady role in this time period. She was, like, a fucking badass. She's like, oh, you're a con artist. I'm gonna shoot you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, like, later, like, she's the one who found the fucking tomb. Like, they were, she was like, here's, like, the basic, this basic-ass <laughs> map. Like, here's how you use a map. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, she's right. <laughs> I really like the idea that um, Marta's had to do this a few times to protect her dad from, uh, from con men. <laughs> so this is, so I, I, you know, have a big old headcanon where, um, 
just Marta's this ridiculous woman who's been uh, looking after her father for long, much longer than she's needed to. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, my biggest criticism of this film is going into it, I knew it was a lighthearted sort of somewhat comedic adventure film, but it needed more mummy. That was the big problem. It needed more mummy. My thought here is what if, what if the mummy's hand is the beginning of, um, you know, the very beginning of movies start starting to take uh, humans to be the problem and not the monsters? Humans were the monsters all along. Either way, I want to see more people get killed by mummies. I mean, yeah, that that's that's true. Uh, I just want I want my mummy to not look like a butthole. <laughs> <laughs> but Dad, don't you want more bad card trick scams in your mummy movie? Instead of mummies? <laughs> no, uh, like all the shit in the bar is awful. Oh, I thought that was really funny, guys. I was enjoying it. <laughs> I'm just trying to defend my position here. It's like minute 40 of a less than 70 minute movie before the mummy appears. That's all I'm saying here. That's true. <laughs> I would like to take exception with this film's title. <laughs> I thought it was going to be some like weird like like oh here's like a cursed mummy's hand something 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 dark side and it wasn't that so I, I think it just means like oh like the mummy's like caretaker <laughs> I think it's yes. the movie about the high priest uh, the mummy's live in <laughs> nurse is. yeah it's totally about the high priest that's stupid <laughs> it really reminded me like a like a stupid amount of Indiana Jones and um, unsurprisingly the 90s version of the mummy but like in all the right ways. <laughs> I guess something I can say about this movie is uh, there were several sequels to this movie all throughout the 40s. Universal put out sequels to this. So I believe three Karis Mummy movies were made after this. Uh, and the next one, uh, it, it includes all the principal cast of this film, including George Zuko uh, as Andhotep, even though he was shot to death at the end of this. I was so glad that he was shot to death. That was that was one of my that was a, so, I was so glad, you know. You never get someone goaded to shoot someone else and they actually shoot them. <laughs> yeah, but the thing about that scene most was just like you could have you could have tried this this act on anyone else but you picked the dumb guy so he's just going to shoot you. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to shoot me. Bang. Uh, all right. Oh, you, sh you shot me. Uh, okay. That did not see that coming. <laughs> So the principal cast of uh, this film returned for the next one, which transports the mummy to America. Hell yes. And in which George Zuko transfers his power to a new high priest played by Turhan Bey, which, you know, they finally actually got around to having like a Middle Eastern actor play one of these roles. Oh, sweet Lord. <laughs> and then in the next one, um, The Mummy's Ghost. Yeah, The Mummy's Ghost is sort of an interesting one because it has probably the biggest downer ending of any of these classic horror films. So, like in the original Mummy, they have the story of the heroine. She's the reincarnation of an ancient Egyptian princess. Oh, it's the plot of the, the Mummy remake. Uh, kind of. So, still in America, at the end of that film, The Mummy carries off the heroine into a swamp uh, where she rapidly ages, becomes a mummy, and the two of them um, sink into the swamp forever. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, too, once loved. That's so romantic. <laughs> Straight people are weird. Uh, I believe the last one is The Mummy's Curse. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, where the action bizarrely shifts to the Louisiana Bayou. That sounds incredible. Which was something of a popular setting for Universal movies in the 40s. They must have had, like, bayou sets left over from something. Because <laughs> um, Son of Dracula is also set in the bayou. <laughs> so, anyhow, The Mummy comes out out of the swamp in that one. 
Um, it, we should definitely watch the mummy's curse. Uh, goes into one swamp, comes out of another swamp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but also in that film, there's like a comic relief character whose catchphrase is "the devil's alive and he's dancing with the mummy." <laughs> but one time. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> One time he says, the mummy's alive and he's dancing with the devil. <laughs> but anyhow, rather than the 32 mummy, this is the film that would define in the public consciousness what the, you know, the mummy was. Uh, shambles around, strangles people, mute, stuff like that. And so, for instance, in, in the early 60s, when Hammer made their uh, mummy movies, they based it on a variety of... Uh, these 40s universal movies and actually it has the same end of that third Karis mummy movie where the mummy walks into the swamp so that would you know be important for defining what a mummies would be like at least until 1999 when the brendan fraser mummy movie came out uh and it's also uh, a good uh sort of uh, signal for what much of universal's output for 40s horror movies would be which is b-movies mostly aimed at teenagers not terribly serious uh, lots of sequels. And I guess uh, my final thing to say in terms of broad analysis of this film is that uh, the Karis Mummy movies are sort of like a proto like slasher film. You know, you've got this mute, lumbering killer. In all these movies, you know, the appeal is the mummy strangling people. You know, and there aren't the sort of hallmarks like whatever, the teenagers and the, and the you know, the killer killer vision but in terms of you know the the sequels and the being aimed towards teenagers and it is sort of like a precursor of the 80s slasher film which i find to be very interesting yeah thanks man this is also uh interestingly enough one of the first movies that we've watched on this podcast that is set in an exotic land that actually includes a lot of people from that land yeah, <laughs> yeah. like the original mummy aside from a couple extras included zero egyptians <laughs> This one is actually chock full of Egyptians. I mean, they're all played by white people. Yeah. Uh, that's true. And speaking of the Egyptians played by white people, Michael Mark, who played the guy who sells the vase to our heroes, he was uh, Maria's father in Frankenstein. Huh. I'm very curious. So they mentioned in passing that the Egyptian government is trying to stop, quote unquote, archaeologists from grave robbing everything. So I'm very confused about how they got all this stuff out of Egypt. Yeah, or, or like papers to like dig anywhere. <laughs> Oh my God, it was so good. There, there was a line, there was a line, you know, we got papers so we can di now dig anywhere we want in Egypt. <laughs> uh, also, I, I thought it was interesting that in the bar scene where they meet Silvani, the magician, you know, it's this bar, uh, but, but aside from sort of, you know, the three white characters, everyone drinking in the bar uh, appears to be, you know, an Egyptian. Uh, which either makes the film extremely dumb or extremely woke uh, because either the screenwriters don't know that Muslims do not drink or they know that a significant minority of Egyptians are actually Coptic Christians who are allowed to drink. So either, you know, jeers to the screenwriters or cheers to the screenwriters. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing about this movie is woke. Nothing about this movie is woke. <laughs> it is the, the unwokest film we've seen yet, I think. That is 100% no, not true. we watched White Zombie. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I pushed White Zombie out of my mind. <laughs> we watched King Kong. <laughs>
Well, gang, uh, is there anything else we want to say about The Mummy's Hand? Uh, let's watch it again next week. <laughs> to the screenwriter's credit, I've got to say, the seal of Karis's tomb, it's cursed, and the guy who actually breaks it is the guy who dies. Oh. Which, like, you know, a lazy screenwriter would have just had the main character break it, and then some other guy die. But uh, it was Dr. What's-His-Name, the uh, superfluous archaeologist who did it, so. Mm-hmm. I want to talk for a second about uh, the, like, recurring, like, telegram joke. <laughs> oh, God. Like, oh, we got a, we got a spot for you in our bone washing department <laughs> so come over and wash <laughs> oh. my bone yeah him and babe are gonna go bone wash <laughs> yeah also like even by the uh chast standards of the Hayes code era hollywood uh the romance between um our so-called romantic leads is extremely chaste uh i believe there's one peck on the cheek and one i think like- you're all right kid uh, and mostly it's um, Steve Banning and Babe Jensen making doe eyes at each other. Which I vastly prefer. <laughs> I don't need any, oh, I'm really quite fond of you. You're a damn decent beard, kid. <laughs> I just I just want Babe. I want him to keep making jokes. They were not half bad. I thought it was very distracting that he named his little dancing doll Poopsie. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, that was, like, a recurring joke that I expected to, like, become a thing. Like, oh, like, he was going to get shot, but, like, it was in his pocket and saved him or some bullshit. It was just, like, this really weird recurring joke that he had a doll named Poopsie. Yeah, there was more Poopsie than Mummy. <laughs> All throughout the film, you know, Babe, he's this comic relief character. He's doing this dumb rock gag. He does card tricks. You know, he's always cracking jokes. Even as a sidekick, he's totally useless. And then we get to the end of the movie, and all of a sudden, he's a cold-blooded killer. <laughs> like, he's, he's just like, I'm going to give you to the to the count of three, Professor Andoteb, and then I'm going to put a cap in you. And he's like, you wouldn't do it. One, uh, you know, you don't have the heart for it. Two, uh, and you can't kill me. Three, blam! <laughs> and then, you know, it's a bizarre transformation. Maybe Babe has the heart of a killer. He's probably like that guy who like, you know, like everyone, maybe just because I'm like from a weird part of the world, but like, you know how like everyone knows one person who's like grandfather is part of the mob. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And like and like you met him and he seemed very nice and then like a year later you're like your friend is like, "Oh, oh yeah, he was part of the mob and he probably killed a bunch of guys." And you're like, "What? He was very pleasant." Well, that's Babe Jensen, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, anyhow, um is there anything else we want to say about the mummy's hand? What's the moral of this movie, y'all? Oh god, there's so many. Maybe obvious scam artists are right. <laughs> I'd say the moral for this movie for me is, you know, anytime you got a bunch of people who are like, there's a superstition we have and it's enough to make us like run screaming from a place. <laughs> maybe listen. There's better places to hide uh, your forbidden ancient temple than just like inside of the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> w- yeah. Would anyone, anyone other than me recommend this movie? Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Cool. I would say that you can you can probably skip this one. That's my opinion. Yeah. Skippable is definitely the word. Not enough mummy is my opinion. Hashtag not enough mummy. Uh, okay. All right, Barnes, you gotta break the tie. Uh both sides do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, gang, thank you so much for tuning in. All right, guys. 
Yeah, if you if you want to listen to me talk more about the mummy, you should uh, come follow us on a uh, pay- uh, you know not just follow us but donate to us on a uh, Patreon dot com slash Spookarama. Yeah, uh, we should actually make a a very mummy centric movie. I'm down, but not movie episode. Yeah, so I believe that seals the deal. We're going to do, for a bonus episode, Mummy Cast. Yeah, I'm totally down. Uh, I think that just about wraps up this episode of Saturday Night Spookorama. Before we go, I believe there is a small amount of housekeeping we need to do. For instance, I believe that for the folks back home, we do want to mention the movies that we're talking about next week. Uh, So, unless my senses deceive me, I believe next time we are going to be staying in the year 1940, and we're going to be watching the Bob Hope horror comedy, The Ghost Breakers. And then we're going to be watching the first all-black horror film, Son of Ngagi, assuming we can find it, which is not totally clear right now. So, uh, guys, if you like the show, please feel free to follow us on Twitter at twitter.com, uh, uh, at Spookorama. Uh, you can also send us an email at spookoramapodcast at gmail.com. We do check it. Please do. We do check it. Uh, send us fan mail, hate mail. We'll read it on the air in a recurring mailbag segment, assuming we ever get enough mail to do anything like that. Or any mail at all. Or <laughs> any mail whatsoever. Please send us mail. Patreon just emailed us saying we were doing a good job, so hopefully... Aww. Guys, Patreon thinks we're doing all right. Do you think we're doing all right? If so, maybe you should donate to our Patreon. Uh, a small monthly contribution helps us out a lot. Uh, it helps us improve the show by allowing us to buy audio equipment. We just bought new microphones. We just bought new Everyone microphones. Everyone but Justice has a new microphone. Um, that's because Justice is uh, morally wrong, unlike the rest of us. Yeah, a profligate thanks, West Coaster. Yep, that's me. Who will die in the coming purges. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Justice is setting himself up for a future Mummy sequel. <laughs> oh, so, uh, guys, please, if you like the show, uh, consider donating to our Patreon. It really does help us out a lot. It helps us buy new audio equipment. Uh, it also helps us uh, make frivolous uh, joke claims like that we're going to sign up for the TCM Wine Club. Which we totally are. And drink Frankenwine or buy matching jackets. All of these things are happening. I will double down on my insistence that when we hit $250 a month, I will write a uh, serialized fiction based on our podcast called Saturday Night Spooko Drama. Which we all will appear in. So uh, if you like listening to us talk... Uh, maybe you should consider uh, trying to make that uh, trying to make that happen. Oh yeah! Also, if you like the show and whether or not you want to give us money, that really is irrelevant. If you are subscribed on iTunes, uh, please feel free to leave a rating and a review. Uh, that actually helps us out a lot. Helps our visibility. And as always, please feel free to tell your friends. Pass us along. I think that just about does it for us, guys. What do you say? I mean, all news is good news. Well, gang, uh, I've had a great time recording this episode. I hope you've had a great time listening to it. Uh, So uh, until next time, um, I'll see you soon. Say goodbye, folks. Goodbye, folks. Bye, guys. Goodbye. Bye, con Dios. Bye, everyone.
Uh, I have a question for Mr. Barnes. What? Uh, Audacity crashed while I was going, and I started it again. Do you know if there's a way I can recover that? How much did you lose? I don't know. Mo most of it. Sorry.